Hi, it's Lou Rosenfeld. You're listening to the Rosenfeld Review Podcast. I have two guests today, um, people I've known uh, and respected for a really long time, although I'm angry at them. Uh, one is Kristen Skinner, and the other is Peter Merholtz, and they wrote a book that's been out just about three years now called Org Design for Design Orgs, and they published it with some other publisher, O'Leary, right? Yeah. That sounds about close enough. Yeah. So, um, great O'Reilly book. I, I, I'm, I'm still mad at them, but um, uh, Kristen is someone I've worked with on uh programming and curating the Design Ops Summit, uh, the third one's coming up. She's had um, design management and uh, design operations roles, uh, at, uh, pretty influential roles at places like Chase and Capital One, just to name a few, and as and, uh, an Adaptive Path alum. Uh, Peter is one of the co-founders of Adaptive Path, has had a number of roles in design management and leadership since. They're both really smart people. They're both teaching uh, uh, org design for design orgs uh, workshop uh, in September, October, November in a number of different cities with Rosenfeld Media uh, in 2019. So let's jump in. Uh, you know, the book's about three years old. Why did you write a, a book on org design three, you know, well, you probably wrote it four or five years ago. What was going on then? May I? Please. Yeah. So um, I had been working at that time, I had been working at Groupon. So I had left Adaptive Path and I had been working at Groupon and running the largest team I'd ever run. Uh, got up to about almost 60 people by the time I left. And as while I was um, VP of design at Groupon, I was giving, I was being asked to give talks. And when I give talks, I talk about whatever it is I'm dealing with. And the thing I was dealing with as a VP of design was primarily uh, organizational matters. Um, when, when, when you have a team that large, you're no longer a creative director, you're no longer as focused on process. Uh, and it's more about how do you recruit and hire? How do you structure teams? How do you um, keep people engaged as employees so that they don't leave and work for somebody else? Um, how do you um, make sure that your company is delivering the best experience possible? Um, and for me, a lot of the answers to those questions were organizational and operational. They weren't creative, they weren't process questions. So I started giving this talk about my experience in getting more and more feedback uh, from people about just how it resonated with them uh, and what they were facing and how little there was out there about this, how few people were talking about it at that time. And so after doing that for about a year, um, realized that um, this was a topic that uh, one could write a book on. And Kristen and I had, having had worked together at Adaptive Path um, um, and, and coming at it from different perspectives, me more as a design executive, she is a program management leader, kind of specifically operational. Um, we, we'd shared a lot of thoughts on how to how to run design organizations um, uh, in in our in our own little back channel, and decided to make that front channel. Decided to kind of go public with that. So that was that's my origin story. I don't know, Kristen. I think you might have had something similar, but but maybe a little some 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 different shades there. Certainly, yeah. My experience uh, coming up in my career had been primarily as a UX team of one. I was, I was typically the only interaction designer working in a team of 400 engineers. That was my experience at Microsoft initially. 
I then moved over into a studio model where I was um, effectively the studio manager. So that gave me a different lens on how do we coordinate across hardware design, software design, third-party vendors. We had 15 or 20 different vendors we were managing at one point in the consumer uh, and connected devices division within, within Microsoft. Um, from there, I landed at, at Adaptive Path, and that's where I first met Peter, as he mentioned, and, and I was hired as a contract project manager. And I thought, well, this would be interesting. And we, we ended up um, in my four years there before we were acquired by Capital One, ended up establishing a, a fairly robust yet small program management practice. And it was uh, intentional to address the issues that, that a lot of companies were faced with where we were doing about 20 to 25% of our portfolio with financial services companies. And we recognized that much of the matters of design that, that caused people stress, that caused them to not make progress or uh, not be able to fully realize the potential of design were coming from the operational and managerial side. And that's where I really dug in. And, and from there, um, Peter and I at the, at the time also were co-curating and um, putting together the program for the Managing Experience Conference, which was uh, an Adaptive Path event, which turned into Leading Experience once it hits its 10-year mark. And just after that event, Peter and I had kind of a little bit of a flip conversation about, hey, we should write a book on this stuff. Because as you mentioned, we were having a lot of conversations around um, some of the challenges we were facing. So right when I joined Capital One as part of the acquisition, um, I was charged with making sure that you know folks had a, a great employee experience. It wasn't just about the projects and the programs of work. It was about the people experience and um, really coming in and, and taking a lot of the goodness that Adaptive Path had uh, created environmentally and applying that in-house at Capital One. So um, I was given the opportunity to set up a whole new practice and that was the origin of what's now design operations and design program management there. Um, but at the same time, we, we ended up writing the book and um, we worked with O'Reilly. And it's and, a great book. <laughs> thank you. And, and honestly, it didn't take us a whole lot of time. We were very fortunate that we were able to um, have one another to tag team a little bit where we could, you know, we could push things forward pretty quickly. And um, I think we wrote it, Peter, in like nine months, which is- I was about to say, unlike some author pairs, <laughs> I'm sure Lou is familiar with, it only took us about eight to nine months to uh, get to a completed manuscript. Oh, you're really going to rub my nose in this, aren't you? You're just ruining my day. But, At the you know, end of it, we were like, oh my God, when are we going to be done with this? We need to be done. It was crazy. It was well, next book, you I mean, write, it's it only takes you six pages, months. So, uh, uh, you know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a handbook on these matters. Uh, there's definitely more to say, more we could say. Not at the time necessarily were we ready to, to, to say more. Um, something else, though, that I think um, that's worth expounding on that Kristen just mentioned was that kind of when she talked about how trying to bring the good from Adaptive Path into Capital One, uh, I think one of the reasons we ended up writing the book is, uh, and, and something we've seen as kind of the value of the book is bringing a lot of the intentionality around organizational matters um, that we had at Adaptive Path um, and creating a design culture, creating design um, roles uh, for design teams and how they work. Um, and trying to figure out how do you bring those qualities of a successful design firm into an organization, bring it in-house without it being an internal agency. Too often companies start with that agency model and that's broken. So like what are the principles that underlie that, that allow designers to deliver on quality? And then how do you kind of rebuild that in this cross-functional context? 
Um, and that was, that was definitely one of our uh, motivators. Yeah, so we were, in, in my experience, I was hyper aware going into Capital One and then um, subsequently going into to JP Morgan Chase, massive scale um, of the impending challenges that, that that was going to entail. So took the approach of let's just start small, let's work really closely with senior leadership to ensure that what we're bringing in brings in the best pieces and the best parts. And we're constantly asking ourselves what's working well and what's not. And what I found when you actually apply that at scale, not surprisingly, but worth noting, is that in some cases, some parts of the organization would have the exact same answers for what's working well versus another part of the organization, which was like, this is, this is so broken, please help. Um, and so I found that, that one of the things that drove me and, and inspired me is like, you're never done. There's no end game. There's no like, oh, what is design at scale? And Peter and I are still having these conversations around how big should design organizations actually be? You know, at what point do they start to become less effective given their size? If you're trying to maintain this um, centralized partnership, which we've been we've been proposing um, and supporting, so it's it's an interesting thing because it's an ongoing um, evaluation, just constant constant change. It's well, fascinating, and I like how the two of you have done this because you. you you tried a lot of ideas out both for clients and in a way internally, you got to try them out within adaptive path. Then you went in house, uh, places like cap one and got to scale those ideas up. Uh, and now you're both indie and, um, you're, you're kind of looking at it through yet another lens. Is it similar to your experience, uh, as consultants, uh, for adaptive path, uh, you know, five, 10 ish years ago, or have things changed much? Um, um, so my experience is, is quite different because, because at adaptive path, the, the org that we were designing was the adaptive path design org. How were we going to staff project teams? What were the roles within a project team? Um, how does that project team interact with the client organization? Um, how does that project team interact with leadership within adaptive path or other kind of, um, centralized functions in adaptive path like resourcing, right, which is a concern that every consulting team has. Whereas now, um, you know, my, my concern are these client organizations that I'm working with. And one of the things that I found, I've, I've now uh, in, in the last year plus probably had about three or four distinct companies that I've done different things for. I, I've been on one long-term contract with Kaiser Permanente, and then there were another couple companies that I've been doing work for. And I think something that, that I, don't, I didn't realize uh, as much when we were writing the book, but that's become very clear, that's become very clear to me in the last year and a half, is um, just how different, how much variety there is in how companies are trying to embrace design internally. And that, that's, that was actually one of the challenges we faced writing the book, because we knew people were coming at it from a lot of different perspectives. They aren't all starting at the same place, but, but as an author, you kind of want to meet them where they are, but you don't know where they are. And so, so the book has a lot of principles and practices and, and um, ideals, as opposed to it being a process, right? It's not start here and end here. It's these are things you should be concerned with. These are, these are values that you should aspire towards. We have this one chapter called the 12 qualities of effective design organizations with that idea that those 12 qualities um, are the same if you're two people or 2,000. And something that I'm realizing working with these companies is just 
the immense amount of variety that design, that the, the, the amount of variety of design teams within these organizations and how they, how they operate. So I've done work with um, kind of more standard product design teams um, that are working in kind of agile contexts, right? And you have designers on squads and you have those squads bubbling up to larger concerns and how do you make design work in that environment? Um, but then uh, Kaiser Permanente um, design is largely done in more of a consult internal consulting model. And so how does, how do you make that succeed? Recognizing that, that Kaiser is not going to adopt design at scale. Kaiser has 300,000 employees and maybe 150 designers, right? So, so it, it's going to be a consulting function for, for a while. So how do you enable teams to do their best design work in that context is very different than how you enable a team to do its best design work when they're kind of embedded, working closely with business people and engineering and that kind of thing. Are you, are you finding, you know, Peter, you and I are, are old IA guys. Are you finding some sort of taxonomy emerging uh, or at least some kind of pattern emerging to help make sense of the different situations? And this obviously for you too, Kristen. Um, I, 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 don't, I probably don't have enough data points to, to identify those patterns. Um, you know, I think there's definitely a kind of quote unquote Silicon Valley style kind of tech approach that is, um, you know, born of agile development and where designers are embedded in squads. And that's, that's, a, that's a, a, an increasingly common type. And we see that more and more as we teach our workshop. Um, but then traditional companies, they're kind of like uh, what Chekhov said about unhappy families. These traditional companies are, are unhappy about design in very different ways based on whatever their legacy. Kaiser's a 70 year old company. Um, uh, Chase is decades old, Capital One isn't as old, but you know, talk to people like Wells Fargo or some of these banks or health or whatever these companies are, you know, the longer they've been around and then they start trying to adopt design, they're, they're doing so in this, they're, they're doing so in a very particular context that is built up over decades within that company. And that's gonna be different than some other company. I'm curious, Kristen, having worked obviously more closely at Chase and Capital One, and maybe some other companies you've talked to since then, are you seeing types emerge? Yeah, so I mean, just timeline wise, I've only been independent this time around for a month and I have been uh, trying to be very protective of my time, to be honest, because it's summer and I'm trying to you know, manage my schedule. That's one of the benefits of being independent uh, or so-called benefits. So, um, and my time between Capital One and, and Chase was cut short because I was given the opportunity to join Chase. And it was, it was one of those opportunities I didn't want to refuse because I almost felt like I had uh, a responsibility and a drive to say, okay, what did I learn at Capital One that I could apply at Chase? So 40,000 person company started with um, consumer banking, acquired ING Direct in order to, to go digital. And then JP Morgan Chase, which is you know, <laughs> he's mentioning is a hundred plus year old organization, 250,000 employees globally, it, it, incredible, um, incredible strength in terms of uh, financial empowerment, et cetera. So, Two vastly different experiences, but but the through line for me was really about um, understanding how the business is run, and and frankly, within financial services and particularly within Chase, it is a very heavily finance-driven operation. So when you're thinking about bringing in something like design, a new capability um, that's ill-defined, to be fair, and is uh, not tied to direct revenue stream or not tied to a specific value metric, 
that people can align on inside that organization and across the industry, it becomes this exponential challenge. So it, it, it becomes just part of the balance sheet. So that, that, was, a, that was a very um, surprising yet not kind of insight that I, that I gained. Um, I've only been out for a month, as I mentioned, but one of the things that I've found myself aligning to most is for uh, individuals who are trying to set up a new practice within an organization. So there's a lot of uh, parallels there that I can draw from the high degree of difficulty within a financial services institution to somebody like Airbnb or Grubhub or uh, Pinterest, as an example. Like we want to bring in this new capability in lieu, especially around design ops. I mean, you've seen the, ex the explosive growth we've had in interest in this capability and competency and understanding of it just in the last less than two years. I mean, the first summit we had was 200 people. Last year was 600. This year will be 800 plus. Like that's incredible growth and interest. And these are very senior folks. These are folks who have proven themselves and they're managers plus, and then now they're coming in and setting up new capabilities. So I think that in my experience, that's really where I want to focus. And I, I can leverage the adaptive path experience as well because of the way that we did approach setting up the practice there and how we were very intentional about um, what it meant to be part of this capability and what the expectations were, and even down to the, the programmatic side of it, but here is actually how you run a project um, and tie it back to finance and tie it back to uh, opportunity cost and, and bill rates and all of that. So all of this is to say that I'm gearing more toward um, less about design as a craft and more toward setting up new capabilities, new communities of practice. How do you actually tie that to revenue stream? How do you break it down so that you can you can map into the systems that already exist rather than creating something new and different, which makes it even harder to, to adopt. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you want more, not only do we have a whole bunch of podcasts in our archive, but we have something that's very current, very alive, and very engaging for groups. And that is our communities. Rosenfeld Media runs a variety of communities that meet on a monthly basis for video conferences on a variety of topics near and dear to UX people, ranging from enterprise experience to advancing research to design and research operations. I want to encourage you to join one of our communities. Again, it is free by going to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. Not only will you get a monthly video conference that you can listen in on and participate in, ask questions and so forth. We'll give you access to the recordings. And uh, for some of those communities, we're talking about dozens of recordings with really interesting presenters and facilitators. You'll also get a newsletter. You'll get access to an advice columnist. Yes, we actually are providing advice columnists for each community. And finally, if you're interested in our conferences, our communities correspond to our conferences. So you will be the first to know when, programs, uh, when programs go live, uh, when tickets go on sale, and by the way, most of our conferences sell out, and other good things about our conferences, such as uh, when the scholarship applications open up. So go to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. You're gonna find something that's free, something that's interesting, and it's a great opportunity to find your tribe as well. We'll see you there. Yeah, actually, that's something I want to get at, uh, tapping into existing knowledge. I mean, uh, you know, Peter's already established that knowing a little bit of Chekhov is, is useful. I'm wondering about established management science and, and how much have you drawn on that and uh, how much have you found it to, 
to kind of fall short for design orgs? Um, so th this is something I've been poking at quite actively and I can't claim to be a management scientist, um, but I've been trying to um, level up a bit on, on organizational design and organizational psychology and understanding some of those things. Uh, better and more formally than I have. I mean, it's kind of ironic that we wrote a book called Org Design for Design Orgs, and we didn't engage any uh, formal organization design practitioners uh, <laughs> as part of our own process. But you know what? We're, we, 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 we learn by doing. But as I've, as I've been poking at organizational matters, one of the things that I've been realizing is that kind of one of the, one of the maybe not an irony, but something that caught me off guard was how we ran our teams at Adaptive Path 10 years ago was unintentionally, but 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 has, I, I have now seen um, within the stuff I've been reading about, I, I've been focused a lot on teams and teaming um, and, and how companies can, can operate better in terms of adopting certain team practices. And how we were running at Adaptive Path is how a lot of these management scientists are now telling corporations they need to be operating. Um, uh, small, cross-functional teams, um, dedicated to one another, um, not spread, um, uh, working on a lot of different projects, um, not only focused on kind of their function and department, that's the, where the cross-functionality becomes important. Um, a shared sense of trust, psychological safety you're hearing about, right? There's the Google, Google did the research on a, called Project Aristotle. Um, and one of the, the, the single most important factor of uh, team success um, at Google was psychological safety, right? And that's, is a team member able to speak up and not be, and not be afraid that they will be shouted down, that they will be seen as a wet blanket? You know, can they, can they raise issues as they, as they see uh, necessary? And, and there's, other, there, there's other ones, being able to depend on one another. Um, there, there's four or five different factors. And those were all things we were doing in Adaptive Path. We just didn't we didn't have a language for it. Uh, it was just kind of how we operate. And so um, I think part of that for me was a recognition that um, I think um, many of us in the design community, I don't want to say this is just true about Adaptive Path. I think some I like that studio model. I think this is why things like design thinking and design sprints are becoming so popular. The way that designers practice when they're being their best selves isn't shouldn't be just about how designers practice. Right, it's it should be how these these broader teams function, and I think we're starting to see um, companies realizing that and and trying to figure out how do they bring more of that in there. And there's a struggle because it's different than how they work, um, but we're starting to see more and more designers almost as emissaries of new ways of working, not even design ways of working, um, but just new ways of working. Well, I I think it was you, Peter. I, I, we were talking at one point last year, and you'd mentioned talking to, I think, people in HR, and you were doing a, uh, some sort of, uh, I don't know if it's a diagram or an, an affinity map of some sort. Anyway, it was a visualization of work they were doing, and they were just sort of gobsmacked. They, they just were like, oh, can, can we do that? Is this something we can do? And I, I, I wonder if part of what you two are seeing here is that it's not just maybe designers being their best people or their best selves pulling the, the process forward, but also, you know, organizations are, you know, they, partly they've been hierarchical because we have a hard time visualizing them, 
or visualizing much of anything beyond two dimensions. And I think we as designers sometimes have better tools for visualizing multidimensional relationships between people, especially in a work environment, partly because we've had to, and partly because we have visual tools that help us. I wonder if there's any truth to that, or there may be some other superpowers that you see uh, designers bringing to, to organizations as they try to manage themselves better. I'd love to add a couple of notes here. Um, one is around capabilities and experience and disciplines themselves. And, and what we found, what I've found personally is that when we're talking about this type of work and we have are just using the umbrella of design to, to be fair, because that's a, an organizational construct. If we're not specifically calling out content capabilities or research capabilities or even program management capabilities, I think we're, having, we're missing the mark there. And one of the things that's most powerful is having those folks come together because what I found, and this is specifically from hiring, I've probably hired you know, 300 plus people at this point, um, really, really varied backgrounds from the humanities, from psychology. I'm, I'm thinking about folks like Alana Washington who's been doing some great work um, for Capital One. She came over as a program manager um, a couple of years ago, but she's got an organizational effectiveness background. She worked at, at HBO and she created a whole learning program around organizational effectiveness. Um, as an example, Anel Muller, who is uh, now with PayPal, she was uh, part of Adaptive Path, was one of the very first program managers there. And then she went out onto Capital One and led uh, the people experience team. And now she's over at PayPal and she's the first head of design operations. So there's really an interesting, and part of why I bring up Anel, sorry, is that she worked for Disney for the Family Museum. She was a museum curator um, and an exhibits specialist. She's got two master's degrees. She's an educator. She taught high school history. Like Having folks from those sorts of backgrounds, I think really helps to, to identify not just the, certainly not just the process level, but really sort of organizationally what's happening here. So not necessarily the science that you were, you were talking about, Lou, but, but all the different elements that can contribute to creating that type of environment. Um, I, I bring that up too, because I think there's, there's kind of this dichotomy happening right now where it's like, do you, do you go into an organization and try to change the organization? but you try to change the customer experience in, in which one comes first, right? Because most of us are hired because we are part of the customer experience team. That was my most recent role at Chase. I had research, content strategy, design program management, um, everything but design. And that was about a third of the organization. And we were part of the digital customer experience team. But what we found was that we were working with our audit partners and our controls partners and legal and risk and compliance and really trying to understand, well, what's your process? Well, let me show you our process. Let's see how they can actually fit together. That was 90% of my job. Um, so, so once you get to an organization of that scale, it gets very much this, this dichotomy of like, are we focusing on the internal aspects of the organization in order to support a better customer experience? And then one other provocation I, will, I wanna throw out there because I think it's, it's um, something I've been, I, I'd love to get some feedback on because it's been in my head for a while now is really around why do we have different functions rolling up to different leaders? When we're trying to come together and deliver a product to our customers, why on earth will we have product managers with different incentives, engineers with different incentives, and then design doing something completely different too? How is, why are we not all part of the same team? Uh, I'm nodding violently, which none of you can see, um, but yes, and well, unfortunately we have to wrap it up because, uh, but, 
I hope our listeners are, are not only inspired, but are getting like a really great sense of what it means to be a design leader and how it's not, I mean, the th this very brief conversation has been incredibly wide ranging and um, the target is moving. I think if we had this conversation again in, in five years, some very interesting things would be the same and some other very interesting things will be different. Um, I want to wrap by quickly uh, invoking our tradition on this podcast uh, of if you want to let us know what's inspiring you or who you're, you're really finding interesting, it's always good to, uh, to share that with our listeners. How about you first, Kristen? Sure. I'm, I, I'm fascinated by the work that Scott Birkin has been doing lately around um, defining design. I think that that's an, an exponential challenge. And I think he's up to the task given the, the work that I've seen him do um, and invent, been inspired by previously. So I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of that. Awesome. Love Scott. How about you, Peter? Um, this, this, this will sound uh, um, perhaps a little nepotistic, but um, the design related thing I read most recently that I found inspiring and thought provoking comes from uh, enterprise experience program co-chair Uday um uh Gajindar. Uh, Uday Gajindar, um all around the um the rise of the meta designer I think is what it was called it was Correct. A, an article he wrote for Interactions magazine and really captured I think I mean it's something that for 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 some of us we've been talking about this type of thing for 10 years 15 years it's not unlike the advance for design work Lou that you and I were part of with the AIGA 20 years ago oh but, god but, <laughs> but I think he, I think he brought it into a more modern context, um, and I actually think it's as as crucial uh, as it's ever been, given the uh, the growing uh, size of design and designers. Um, and I think along with that, um, but but relatively, even though the practice of design is growing within organizations relatively design is becoming more and more commoditized. The outputs of design, the outputs that companies are expecting are assets. They are hiring tons of designers to produce a lot of assets to make products go. But what Uday points out in that article is that there's a role for design, a necessary needed role for design to frame the challenges that, that organizations are facing. And we need to um, be way more intentional and serious about tackling that if we don't want to just kind of exist in this um, commoditized asset delivery function. So, well, interesting that. you mentioned Uday. I talked to him this morning and he was complaining to me about how hard it is to, to hire and build a team. So maybe, uh, we should get you guys together and you could do some <laughs> consulting for him. In any case, uh, Kristen Skinner, Peter Merholtz, it's been great to have you on the show. How, what's the best way for people to reach you or find you or learn more about you? We have a, a website that is in uh, dire need of updating, but it's called orgdesignfordesignorgs.com. And then uh, you can always find me on Twitter at Peter Me. And I'm also on Twitter at Betty, uh, B-E-T-T-A-Y, although I'm a lot uh, less vocal these days, but more to come soon. Great to talk with you. Uh, uh, thank you so much, not just for being on the show, but for everything you brought to the field. And everyone go out and buy a copy of Org Design for Design Orgs by that company O'Reilly. You may have heard of them too. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you, Lou. Thanks for listening to the Rosenfeld Review brought to you by Rosenfeld Media. If you like our show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. I'd love it if you tell a friend to have a listen 
And check out our website for over 100 podcasts with other interesting people. You'll find them all at rosenfeldreview.com.